Welcome to today's program. My guest is broadcaster, presenter, Simon Thomas. Simon, welcome to Facing the Canon. Great to see you. How are you? I'm good, <laughs> and I'm thrilled you're here. Lovely to be here. Great to be able to have this opportunity and conversation to tell a little of your own story. I know that you were born, brought up in a Christian home, mm. but there was quite an experience, I gather, when you were seven regarding a tree. Tell us that story. Yeah, so my dad was a vicar, and so you're right, we were brought up in a Christian household. God was part of family life, but I always respected the fact mum and dad never imposed it on us. And we were living in rural Norfolk, so my dad's first parish was in this little village called Grimston, just outside Kingsley in West Norfolk. And it was one of those Saturday mornings in springtime where it just lashed it down with rain all morning. So me and my two sisters, Becky and Hannah, I was seven at the time, Becky was six, Hannah was still in nappies. And there wasn't much to do in the morning, so we got frustrated. Dad had meetings. Vickers always have meetings, and lots of them. Always meetings. <laughs> and sometimes, Simon, meetings about meetings. Yeah, I think it may have been one of those kind of mornings. And we were just frustrated. So he, in the afternoon, because the weather cleared, said, let's go out for a walk. So we drove to this forest called Massingham Woods, near where we lived. And it was just one of these pine forests. Now, I found this as a seven-year-old intensely boring, because I was at the age where any tree needed to be climbed, but pine trees can't really climb. And there was this one tree that stood out from all the others, which was a kind of, had two branches, it wasn't a pine tree, two big, huge sort of branches. And I, I climbed up it and I sat in the middle, so my sort of legs were hanging over in the middle. And I remember my dad being stood there, he was with Becky and my mum was there, and it just started to rain again. And mum said, let's, let's move over to the other side of the clearing. And we were like, that's ridiculous, why? We're already sheltered from the rain where we are. And dad said, mum, you know, Jill, don't be ridiculous. My mum's name was Jill. And she said it again a couple of minutes later, I think we should move to the other side of the clearing to get into the shelter. Again, we were like, oh, mum, why do we have to do that? Dad, no, Jill, come on, don't be so silly. And then, and I can still see her face to this day, and it's many, many years later. She, she looked at me and she looked at Dad and said, I think we need to move and move now. And I think Dad, just for a bit of peace and quiet, just said, look, son, come on, get yourself down, let's move over to the other side. And so across the clearing we went, and I can still hear it now, I can still see it now, and I can still smell it now. Moments later, after getting to the other side of the clearing, it was just the sound like a, a tornado jet was coming very low over the, the forest. And then I just remember looking up and just seeing this kind of channel of fire above my head, and then this huge explosion, and then this massive thud, and there was smoke everywhere. Clearly we were shocked, stunned, whatever words you want to use. And eventually as the smoke cleared, there was the tree that I'd been sat in split in two. I still have a photo of it at home. And it was deeply traumatic. I remember running back to the car in tears. And a few hours later, some friends of ours from my dad's church called the Bowers family, who are just a lovely Christian family, came around just to kind of be with us. And we went back later that evening, and that's where the photo came from, to look at what had happened. And, and Rosemary turned to my mum and said, what was it that made you move? Because nothing in mum's story made any sense in terms of why we moved, and yet it ultimately saved my life that we did move. And she just said, I heard this voice, and I felt it was the, the voice of God just saying, you need to move. And, and that was just, for me, it's something I've always held on to when you have those moments in life where you doubt 
Is this God I follow? Is this story of Jesus, is it actually, is it real? I think back to that moment. Actually, years later, Gerald Coates, you'll know well yeah, and no longer friend. with us. Yes. I remember doing an event when I was on Blue Peter for him and he came up to me afterwards, didn't know this story at all. And he was just chatting me. He said, Simon, just while you were talking tonight, I just felt God saying to me that when you were around about the age of seven, something happened to you that made you realize this God was real. And I said, yeah, I was nearly killed by lightning and told him the story and he was like, there Amazing. you go. What a story. I know. But, but your mum, I, we all get promptings. Yeah, that was some prompting. <laughs> but your mum followed the prompting yeah. and obviously had the discernment to say, listen, we need to do something. Mm. But the, God obviously, Simon, preserved your life. Yeah, yeah, in a quite major way. Which is hugely exciting. I know. Because it's like God saying, no, I have a purpose for you. Yeah, and a plan. I don't and know, yeah. I have a plan for and at you. At the age of seven, you don't know what that is. No, but... no, but it drew you to God. Yeah. Okay, you, you go to university, you went, was it Birmingham? I was Birmingham, yeah, and studying history. history. I've done nothing with it. I loved it. I've done but, nothing with it. But while you were there, yeah. go on, tell us about Lunchbox. Oh, my days, you've done your research. This is impressive. Yeah, that's really where I caught the TV bug from. So I was, I was in that period at university where I was thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, for a moment, I flirted with the idea of joining the police. I actually went down for a selection day at Hendon. Yes. Failed the medical. Well, that's another story, but I'm glad I did. But we had this TV station at the Guild of Students of Birmingham University called Guild TV. And at the start of university, you have this huge kind of society's fair where all the different societies at university gather in the end of Freshers' Week and sell their wares and try and encourage you to join up. I saw this thing called Guild TV. And I had a bit of an interest in broadcasting and I thought, I'm going to see what this is about. And so I ended up doing some stuff voluntarily for them. And then they said, we've got this program called The Lunchbox. goes out Friday lunchtime. The presenter we've had for the last couple of years has decided to focus on their finals, so is stepping down. Do you fancy presenting it. Now, you've got a great setup here. It was a little bit like that at Birmingham, not quite as fancy, but there was a place called Pebble Mill, which is where BBC's daytime yeah. output in Birmingham used to come from. And this, this great guy called Lizo had got all this secondhand equipment. So they set up a proper studio, three cameras, a proper gallery, talk back, so the old earpiece in the ear. Yes. So I learned over time, listen, it was a terrible program. Nobody really watched it. It was on in the kind of bars in the students' union, on mute, on the little tellies. No widescreen tellies back in the early 90s. And I got a real bug for it. But it wasn't really until back in my parents' hometown of Beckles, where my dad's last gig as a vicar was, that, that God really spoke to me about whether this was just a bit of a pipe dream or whether this was actually the direction he wanted me to go in. Absolutely. But then you did pursue that. Mm. You moved to London. You were selling suits at Selfridges. <laughs> two, two and a half years. I started off selling suitcases in the basement of Selfridges because I came down to London at that point before things got much more regional in terms of broadcast media in this country. Everything's pretty much in London. I knew that's where I needed to be, but I, di I didn't have the money, didn't have the parental support financially to survive in terms of chasing this dream in London, but I needed to be there. So I needed a day job and I went to Selfridges, got a job for a few months in the luggage department which is bizarre, uh, and then... Got promoted to suits. Well, yeah, it did feel like a promotion to the design... <laughs> yes. It's called the men's designer room on yes. the second floor. It's very fancy. I remember David Beckham came in just before he got famous. He used to come in every Tuesday. So he'd always come in and ask where the Versace was. 
and would grab a load and off he, off he went again. So I was there, but all the time I was, I was running at weekends for Children's BBC on Wood Lane. I did a, a couple of evenings a week for LBC Radio in London, who were then in Hammersmith, not in Leicester Square. So I'm trying to get my foot in the door. Yes. That's the hardest thing is, is getting your foot in the door and meeting the right people. And along the way, I tried applying for Blue Peter twice, got nothing more than the letter back that said, thanks, we'll keep your details on file. That's basically code for no. Yes. But they don't actually say no. Uh, and then at the tail end of 1998, everything changed. Yes, it opened up for you. Mm. Now, for those from our global audience yeah. who've not heard of Blue Peter, what is Blue Peter? Right, well, the first thing to say, it is the longest running children's show in the entire world. That's it's incredible. Yeah, it's been going over 60 years. Yes. It just celebrated its 40th anniversary when I joined, so that ages me slightly. But it's essentially a 25-minute magazine show. Now, it has changed now because the whole broadcast landscape has changed now, particularly for kids. They watch lots of YouTube. My son, Ethan, yes. it's YouTube. It's not CBBC like it was back in the day. 25-minute magazine show. And it's called Blue Peter because there was these voyages of discovery that went out from this country, these big ships, many, many hundreds of years ago. And the flag that was raised on these ships of discovery was called the Blue Peter. And that's where the show got its name from. It was a, a show of discovery, both in terms of travel, in terms of, you know, educating and, and showing people what adventure looked like. So as presenters, you'd get to try lots of daredevil thing. I, I did 25 countries during the course of, of six years. So essentially, it's a magazine show, but all the time, it's, it's about discovering new things. So that's where the name came from. And it's been going a long, long time. I grew up watching it and then yes. ended up working on it. Yes. Now, and during that time, lots of adventure, you yeah. went skydiving. I did. I mean, what was the hardest thing that you were asked to do? Well, that was the one I thought was going to be the most fun, but in the end, psychologically, mentally became the hardest. So the idea was I'd train, learn to skydive, get my license, and then we were billed to do a display at an air show somewhere in the UK over the course of the next summer. So out we went in the January, and I got to jump number four. So at this stage, you are, you are once you pull your chute, you're on your own, but you come out of the plane at, I think we were jumping around about 13,500 feet. You get about 55 seconds of free fall, 120 miles per hour. Then you pull your chute at 5,500 feet. So I had two instructors from the RAF, Toby and Roger. They hold your arms on the way down. So we did three jumps. They went well. It was very nerve-wracking. Jumping out of a perfectly healthy aircraft is madness, but it's fun. And then came the fourth jump. And all I can say is, is we were coming down 120 miles per hour. I could just feel, as I went to pull my chute, nothing happening. Then I can feel this sensation like someone's punching my back. And it felt a lot longer than it was, but eventually the chute flung out, appears above me and everything's fine and gently down I came. And what they do is after every jump, they'd show you the video of, of what happened because they want to show you your body position. It's so important with skydiving, your body position is good because your legs position affects how you fly through the air. They showed me that jump and I watched with horror because as they showed me, you can see the reason why I felt those punches is as I went to pull my chute, nothing happened. It didn't come out. And you've got Toby and Roger, literally as we're dropping through the air at 120 miles per hour, thumping the backpack to get the parachute out. And, and I totally lost my bottle. I did two more jumps and I couldn't do it anymore. So I went home feeling a failure. We were kind of seen by kids as these kind of superheroes and I failed. But then an interesting thing happened is a year later, I persuaded the program, what about we make a program about going back and facing your fear? Oh, very good. So they eventually agreed to it because it's expensive to go back out there. And I said, look, I'm gonna do it. 
and I got there and I remember arriving back at the same hotel. You know, sights and smells oh, and sounds? Yes. They fire off things. They all came back. Everything memories. came back. And that night, I'm in my hotel room. Everything from the year before has come back. And I just had this wrestle in my mind, which is essentially tomorrow I'm putting my trust in a load of nylon string, two lots of it because you have a reserve shoe, and some fabric. If those don't work, which is highly, highly, highly unlikely, I'm going to find out whether this God I believe in is true or not. And I didn't feel ready to find out. And it played with my mind the whole night. Now, there's a guy who you know called Phil Wall. Yes. He's been like a mentor to me over the years. And he'd said to me ahead of the trip, so I said, I'm quite nervous, but I want to do it. He said, if you ever need to chat, to pray it through, give me a shout. So I woke up that next morning, I sit down at breakfast. My director was looking at me saying, you look white as a sheet, just didn't sleep well, so jet lagged, pull the other one. And I went to get some donuts from the opposite at Dunkin' Donuts, just to give the RF boys on the, on the half an hour journey to the drop zone where you jump. And I felt sick. And I'd spoken to Phil literally five minutes before, and he prayed this really powerful prayer. He said, look, mate, you'll be okay. But he said, I'm just going to pray. And he said, Jesus, I pray right now in the next few minutes, because I told him about this wrestle sure. in my head the night before, that, that, that Simon would know that this God that he follows, that you, Jesus, are real. Amen. Thanks, Phil. Dunkin' Donuts, get the donuts, waiting to cross the road to get back to the hotel to get in the van. And I felt this tap on my right shoulder. I looked around, there's this young guy, I've never met him in my life. I'm not gonna do the American accent at this point. Yes. He just looked at me and he said, I want you to know, Jesus is real, bless you. And, and off he went. Now, I literally stood there shocked like this. And then I looked to my right and it's a long avenue. The guy's disappeared. I, can't, I cannot see him anyway. It's literally like a second between looking there, him saying that, me looking down, looking back and he's vanished. And that was like one of those moments when I was seven, that reminder of this of God, it's not some fantasy. Do you think he was an he's angel? Real. Yeah, I do actually, I 100% I believe he was I, an angel. I do. Yeah, God's on my case. And I thought, I can do this. Yeah, I was nervous that first jump. Well, we you... produced this epic film. And by the end of it, I'm doing somersaults out the side of a plane. It, it was just magnificent. And a real story of kind of conquering fear, which actually for the kids watching was a really good tale. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you moved on from Blue Peter, you went into uh, football, presenting and commentating, and you've been doing that for a while now. My aim was to get into sports broadcasting, tried the BBC, didn't happen, and then Sky in 2005 said, we'll take you on. So I did a few years on a channel called Sky Sports News. Then I got the gig of doing the Football League on Sky, and then by the 2015-16 season, I got the big gig, which was the Premier League. That was kind of the top at Sky in yes. terms of sports presenting. So it was a long journey, but I, I, you know, I've always loved sports. So to be doing that for your job... Was amazing, isn't it? Unbelievable. Amazing. Now, you got married to Gemma. Yeah. And then there was something that you never, ever dreamt you'd have to face mm. um, when your wife passed away and incredibly quickly and yeah. suddenly. yeah. Tell us a little about that. Yes, yeah, so I've been married to Gemma since 2005, and then the autumn of 2017, as you said, everything suddenly went horribly, horribly wrong. So in 2009, we'd had Ethan. So he was eight at the time. I was actually going through, during this period, some really horrendous mental health problems. I suddenly was getting massive anxiety and panic attacks and depression around work. So I'd actually come off Sky in the autumn of 2017 which was impossibly hard because I got my dream job and suddenly, mentally, I couldn't do it anymore. I was looking back at it now, I was having a breakdown. Yes. In amongst that, Gemma starts to feel unwell. Now, she was 40 at the time, so she was young. She was 
plenty of headaches. Looking back on it, there were bruises that wouldn't go. And then this fatigue began to build during the middle part of that November of 2017. And, and in the end, after trips to the doctors who didn't pick up on it, and that's one of the biggest things with blood cancer, that as president of Blood Cancer UK, we're trying to change, which is awareness. We eventually took her to A&E because the doctors weren't picking up on what it was because we were just worried about her. And it was a Monday night in Reading. And in the early hours of that Tuesday morning, uh, she was diagnosed with a blood cancer of some sort. We didn't know what at the time. And then it was just like a cartwheel of events that you felt simply unable to exert any kind of control on. You feel as, as the husband, you feel as the, the person standing on looking. And for anyone who's been alongside ill loved ones, it's a horrible experience. Not just the fact they're ill, but the fact that you are helpless to do anything about it. She was transferred on the Tuesday to Specialist Hospital in Oxford, where she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of blood cancer called acute mild leukaemia on a Tuesday. And first couple of days she responded to the treatment and we knew it was a long road back. She was given a 50-50 chance of survival. So that was devastating itself. But you know, in terms of hope, you hang on to the 50% that do get better. And, and then on the Friday, just everything cartwheeled, totally out of control. She went from looking actually in the best health she had done for quite some time on the on the Thursday night to falling unconscious in the early hours of Friday morning. And by half eight on a Friday morning in, in November, you are being sat down in a room with a doctor on your own. Because Ethan's back at home with family being told quite out of the blue that Gemma's got hours to yes. live. And then you're gathering family and friends. You're wondering how you go about telling Ethan and by, by early evening at the age of 40, she's gone. So you've gone literally from three days diagnosis to death. And I, and I prayed with the most faith I've ever prayed that day that, that God would pull her through. My, my constant plea to God was, please, please, Lord. It was less about me. Do not leave my boy without a mum. Yeah. Please don't, don't. And ultimately those prayers weren't answered. And, and from that point on for quite some time, it was hell. It was yes. a battle on lots of different fronts. Um, it was dark and really dark. desolate. Yeah. yeah. Did you feel kind of abandoned by God or did you, in the midst of that storm, was the peace of God there? On the day of her funeral, we had a big service at our church where we were in Reading at the time, Greyfriars, and there's 400, 500 there. It was huge. But you're just in a bit of a daze to the eulogy. You get through it. And then we had the wake afterwards, I hate that name by the way. And, and then we had the last slot at the crematorium. And I think the gravity of the day and of the three weeks before hit me that afternoon in the darkness of that December day at the crematorium. So often just hopeless places. It feels like there's not a lot of hope in a crematorium. And as we waited and the hearse appeared, I remember just collapsing to the ground and just shouting out no. And my friends kind of picked me up from the gravel. And I got a friend of mine who, Quite a few watching this will have heard of Carl Beach, yes, who yes. You know, has been instrumental with Christian Vision for Men for so many years and such a good mate of mine. And he was there. And I remember at the back, he just prayed out loud. He just said, God, I just pray right now that this, this man, that this family would just know your peace, that your peace would descend on this place. And so we went in. It was a very short sort of 20 minute thing. And I felt this remarkable peace. I mean, remarkable, in a place I really should not be feeling peace. Yes. For the first time I felt not content of what had happened, but okay to sit with the pain of what had happened, but also be thankful for the life that she had and the person that she was. I remember getting back to our house about an hour later and a friend of mine, his wife, who 
wouldn't profess to have any faith, had lost her brother to suicide only a, a year or two before. And she turned me just before they left to go home that night. And she said, do you know what? She said, I don't really understand this, but as I stood in that really grim place just a couple of hours ago, and as we sung that final song, she said, I felt this peace that I have never, ever felt before. And I don't know what it was. And I remember saying to her, it's God. Yeah, it is God. It's that peace of God that surpasses all understanding, breaking in to chaotic, pain-filled places. It's basically God's peace reigning in places you least expect it Absolutely. to reign and to be. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. It but is. It, after that, though, it was, it was tough, really yes. tough. Uh, the, one of my favourite scriptures is from Song of Songs, where it says in chapter two, winter is over, springtime has come, mm. and the sound of doves can yeah. be heard. And uh, bereavement, there's a, there's a winter, mm. but where people have hope. So you, obviously you got through that. Mm. Your book, Love Interrupted, hugely, um, actually hugely illuminating mm. and very heartwarming. Did you find it, what's the word, cathartic or therapeutic, trying to articulate what happened? Yeah, I think I did. I mean, it was hard at times um, writing it, but I think what I wanted to do is I think there's a temptation, both as non-Christians and Christians, we like to sanitise death a little bit because it's, yeah. it's the great taboo. We don't want to talk about it. We know it's going to happen, but it, it, it'll happen on another day. We don't like to think about it too much, but sometimes we're going to have to deal with it. And all of us at some stage will have to deal with it. And I, I didn't want to sanitise it. I wanted to be really honest, particularly from a, from a Christian point of view, because I did find it difficult in the early days where some Christians would offer you those what felt like platitudes. Well, yeah. she's in a better place now and she's, she's with Jesus and you know she's not suffering anymore. But, but the raging thing in my mind was, but she should be here. Yeah. She should be still Ethan's mum. She shouldn't be in heaven. It wasn't time for a trip to heaven. So I, I wanted to be really honest because do you know what the biggest lesson I've learned? Well, I've learned lots, but one of the lessons I learned quite early on, which has, has been a big thing for me, and actually for Ethan, as we've sort of navigated the last few years, and this is true for us as Christians, it is absolutely okay to experience joy and pain at the same time. Now, I think back to where I first really recognised this. England had asked if Ethan would be a mascot at their home game against Italy in the March of 2018. Amazing thing for him to do. So we went to Wembley together. Just I've still got the pictures at home of him walking out of the tunnel with Eric Dyer, who was the England captain for the night. He didn't captain England too many times after that. Yes. But he was captain. He brings Ethan out first, just seeing Ethan's look of awe and wonder at Wembley, 90,000 people, the national anthem ringing out. As I took him home later that night, he was still in his fresh England kit. He was tired. It was gone 10. He's, he's only eight. And I just said to him before he fell asleep, I said, how was that? He said, oh, daddy. He said, it was, it was the best night ever. I'm so, I'm, I'm so proud. I said, I'm proud of you. He said, but I'm, I'm sad as well. And I said, why are you sad? Obviously I knew the answer. I'm sad yeah. because mummy wasn't here to see it. I just went, that's it. This is his life going forward. And actually to an extent mine, yes. in that he experienced great joy tonight and pride of being an England mascot, but sitting alongside yeah. that is pain. It's a sweet. And when those yeah. milestones in his life comes, like the day he leaves school, like the day hopefully he gets good exam results, the day maybe one day he gets married, whatever it might be, 
joy and pain can coexist. And it is absolutely fine for us as Christians to feel both those things at the same time because it doesn't lessen our faith in God. It doesn't lessen who God is. God understands more than anybody what pain is like. Absolutely. And there, Simon, there are, there are some plants that produce a beautiful fragrance, mm. but they only produce a beautiful fragrance when they're crushed. Mm. And you probably are not aware of it, but there's a great fragrance that permeates from you. It's not my aftershave. No, <laughs> it's not your aftershave. <laughs> but you got remarried. I know. I know. So was that a surprise? I, I'll be honest, I didn't. I didn't expect to ever find love again. I didn't think someone would be able to love me again, not because I'd become unlovable, but because of the, the baggage of history uh, and all that had come before. And I remember in the kind of May of 2018, I think it was God just laying his hand on me. I just thought, why have I accepted that life going forward now is just gonna be some kind of second best? Because God isn't the God of second bests. No. God is the God who brings newness out of wreckage. He's the God who repairs broken hearts. He's the God who revitalizes people when they feel utterly worn down. Why can't this be true for me? I know that life can never be the same again. Why can't it be as good again? And then I met this amazing girl called Darina who, I don't really know how to describe her apart from she's just, I, I feel incredibly blessed to have met two incredible women yeah. and she just, a remarkable empathy when I first became a friend of hers, ability just to sit alongside quite a broken man. But as time went on and we, we fell in love, I realized I'd met a really remarkable woman, just a woman of, I mean, she's very beautiful. Yes. But she, she is utterly beautiful on the inside. Yes. Uh, has an incredible generosity of spirit. She's someone who just has always been able to stand with her friends when her friends mm. have gone through really difficult times. She was someone who, became an amazing person in Ethan's life as well. And that's, that's a really difficult thing to do. You know, when we talk about step-parenting and blended families, you know, loving someone else's child like they are your yes. own is an amazing gift, yeah, it, but it it's is. a tough gift you can give someone because it's, it's asking you to do things that perhaps in life you didn't expect you were ever gonna do. But it has been a remarkable blessing. And, and now we've got, She's not far from here, through in the other room, a beautiful four-month-old daughter called Talitha. So, beautiful. You know, when I look back on five years ago and look at now, I, I would never have believed that life would have become what it has done now. But all the way through, what I see, John, right the way through is the way that God was with me every step of the way. We have that Absolutely. impression that when the really tough stuff hits the fan in life, when of we course. feel on the floor, that somehow God leaves the building. I felt at times he'd gone, but he hadn't. He was always there walking, sometimes quietly, but every step of the way he walked me through. And when I look back at the last five years and the, the different friendships that came out of it and the, and the story of Darina and the story of her relationship with me and then Ethan and now Talifa, I see God's blessing and God's providence and God's love and God's kindness woven throughout what starts as a really deeply tragic story. Yes. Simon, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Really appreciate you sharing your story. I know it would have encouraged many of our listeners. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Absolute pleasure. Bless you. Highly recommend Simon's book, Love Interrupted. Uh, a fantastic read and a, a quite a healing re a read, actually, for anyone who is suffering from grief, 
but anyone really, because we're all part of this world and the world's the story of life is about life and death, but it's also about redemption. I hope you've been inspired by Simon's story. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. Just 10 by J. John. Relaunched and reimagined. Just 10 is a 10 session series to explain the Ten Commandments and their relevance today. With free video resources for churches and small groups and a re-released book to help you go deeper. Take time to unpack how each of us can live by these timeless principles today. Visit just10.org to find out more.